By the way, did you guys hear that there's actually a bear spotted? Oh. <laughs> Ask me where. In the prayer gardens. So that's either that's either one more reason why it's good that we're in here. After being in the prayer gardens. So for some of you guys, that's a disappointment, and you wish you were out of the prayer gardens right now. For others of you, it's a sense of security. No, but, but seriously, guys, I know that uh, a lot of you wanted to be out there in the prayer gardens, um, but I appreciate you giving me the uh, welcome to um, but I appreciate you guys switching it up and coming in here. It's a lot easier on me as a speaker, um, just to be able to not fight the wind and be able to see all of your eyes and so forth and so on. Um, you want to pray with me? And then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have had consistently this week to open your word and to cry out to you in prayer and ask that you would come and meet with us. And we pray that same prayer again right now. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts, and that you would fill us with the knowledge of your gospel. So we ask this in the name of your Son, for his glory. Amen. All right. Well, as you guys remember, a uh, reminder of, of uh, where we were when we were talking up in the prayer garden, uh, these are the grace talks. And uh, I said in the prayer garden that the entire gospel can really be summarized in one statement, and we're trying to unpack that statement uh, during the course of these talks. And that statement is God saves sinners. And you remember that we said that by that statement, what we mean is that the triune God, Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does absolutely everything necessary in order to bring you and I sinners to faith and repentance. And so we want to walk through the role of each of those uh, members of the Trinity in these talks. Uh, we're condensing yesterday's talk and today's talk together, so we're going to be moving through this pretty fast and pretty curiously. So open up in your binders. Try to keep with me. Um, this, is, uh, this is kind of the theological portion of YXL. So I'm going to be throwing a lot of terms out at you, terms that many of you may be familiar with, terms that are radically new for some of you. Um, hopefully I'll define most of those terms as I go. But if there's terms or if there's anything uh, that I say, please feel free to pursue me or any one of the counselors or speakers and uh, we can talk about that. Um, there's going to be some stuff in the binders that we're just going to completely skip uh, for the sake of time. Um, you can take that home and talk to your youth pastor or youth leader about that and uh, walk, walk through them with that. Open up in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You'll remember that we looked at verse 3 on Monday together. And uh, we want to we pick it up from there. And the question that I want you all to hold in the front of your minds as we work through this today is this question. How much does God really care 
about you? How much does God really care about me, Patrick, as an individual, as a person? How much does he care about you personally? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul opens up and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen here in verse 4 as he begins to uh, enumerate what those blessings are. He says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What do you guys see there in verse 4 and 5? Go ahead and just shout it out. What, what blessings... Does Paul tell us about in verse 4? You have to look down at your Bibles. Okay. He's, he's made us holy and blameless, or is working to make us holy and blameless. Even before that, what did he do? Verse 4. He chose us, right? He chose us in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, from before the foundations of the earth. In order that we can be holy and blameless. What do you see in verse 5? Adoption. Okay. And how does that adoption come about? Predestination. By predestination. He predestined us for adoption. So from the very beginning, Paul begins with two phrases. He says he chose us. And he predestined us. He chose us and he predestined us. Now, Paul is saying here in these verses to the Ephesians, what he's saying to us is that if we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't us who chose God. It was God who chose us. I got to tell you a little bit about my... Uh, my kids on Monday. I want to tell you about my wife today. Um, we met in college, uh, sophomore year of college, uh, pretty much about, about the middle of the year. And we, we spent uh, most of that year kind of hanging out in the same social circle. So we saw each other fairly regularly. A lot of my guy friends hung out with her girlfriends, and we did a whole lot together. And then finally, we came to the very last night. Um, before we were all ready to go home at the end of the semester. We had all finished our finals. We were packing our cars and going to leave, leave college and go home for the summer. And that night, we all went out, a big group of us, um, hung out that evening, came back to campus midnight or one. And uh, at that point, I, uh, I turned to Nicole, my wife, and I asked if she wanted to take a walk just around campus before she went back to her dorm. And she said, sure. And so we started to walk around campus for a little bit. And I went to a college called Grove City College over in western Pennsylvania. Most of you here from the southwest have probably never heard of Grove City. But it's a little Christian college stuck in the middle of a farm town in Pennsylvania. And so eventually we made our way off campus and into the town and started walking around town. And it started to rain on us. And so we took shelter 
underneath the awning of the post office. And we sat there for a little while, 2 o'clock in the morning or something, talking. And uh, the rain eventually stopped. We kept talking. And finally, 6.30 in the morning or so, the sun started to come up. And we sat there all night long, from 1 o'clock in the morning till 6, or 1 o'clock at night till 6.30 in the morning, right there on the post office steps. And at that moment, I knew that this was the woman that I wanted to marry. Now, I chose her over every other girl on campus, every other girl who I had ever known. I chose her, and I decided to pursue her, and to woo her, and somehow, by God's grace, to actually win her. You know, but, but in that moment, I chose to set my love on a particular girl. Contrast that story with uh, another story that I was thinking about opening up with, which would have been a complete lie, but I was just going to float it past you. This, is, this, is, this was the, uh, the other version of how I got to know my wife. I came to, my, came to the end of my senior year at Grove City, and it's a small Christian school, so you're supposed to be able to meet your spouse before you graduate. Bears <laughs> on the hill, right? Covenant College. Kind of same idea. We showed up our freshman year, and... Uh, the uh, kind of the, the social person or whatever he had, or she had this thing. She said, look to your left, look to your right, your future mate may be in sight, right? So story goes, I come to the end of my senior year and I don't need a girl. And so there's this, there's this board in the mailroom where everyone posts anything. So if you want to sell a textbook, you put it on the board. If there's a social event on campus, you put it on the board, right? So uh, I come to the end of my senior year and I'm really lonely. And so I put a little note up there and I say, Skinny philosophy major getting ready to graduate once a wife. <laughs> Call 562-4061. And luckily, Nicole called. No, that's not the story, right? And that, that story is really a mockery of love, right? It's a mockery of the entire idea of marriage. But a lot of times when we think about our relationship with God, we frame it more in terms of that second story. Kind of like God posts this, this message of the gospel on some cosmic bulletin board and says, yeah, if you're out there and if you want to, I sent my son he died. Please believe. And that's not, that's not where the Apostle Paul or anyone in Scripture, any of these Scripture writers, tell us that it begins. We're reminded here in verse 4 and 5 that God's grace begins before the foundation of the world. When he set his love he set his affection on particular sinners, on you and me. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then you have this knowledge that God, from before the foundations of the earth, chose you. In love, he predestines you for adoption. 
That's square one of grace. The question, though, that we typically ask is, well, what is this, what is this election based on? Because you, you can't read through Scripture and ignore the idea of election. You can't read through Scripture and ignore the idea of predestination. It's written throughout Scripture. But what is this election based on? Turn to Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8. The paper says verse 30, but actually uh, we want to look at verse 29 and 30 together. Or really just 29. Paul says here, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we see here that Paul says, in God's economy, in his plan of redemption, there was something that preceded predestination. And he calls it here in 829 foreknowledge. What does it mean that God foreknew us? Sometimes it's said that, well, what this passage means is that God's predestination, his choice in order to save particular sinners, is actually based on the fact that he looks down the corridor of time, right? Because God is outside of time. He looks down the corridor of history, and he sees. He sees that Patrick Tabano isn't that bad of a character. And that he's actually going to place his faith in him at some point. And so he chose me. That's sometimes how the script is written. And that makes a little sense, right? Foreknowledge, right? That sounds like, okay, so he knew something before it happened. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. Turn back to Genesis chapter 4. And this is something that we see all throughout Scripture. Typically, when, when Scripture talks about knowledge, and particularly God's knowledge, Paul isn't saying that God knew you or I in some way, but rather he's saying that God actually loved us. <coughs> Read a couple of verses here from uh, Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's some type of knowledge, right? Verse 17, same language. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. I think you guys have all had to talk about the birds and the bees at some point, right? And so we, we know what's going on in this passage. When Adam knew Eve, it wasn't simply that he recognized who she was and knew some stuff about him. Her. This, is a, this is an intimate knowing, right? This is, this is the language of sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife. And when Paul says that all those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, he's saying something very similar to that. All of those whom God loved from before the foundation of the earth he also predestined. So God sets his affection on particular sinners, and then he does something about it. He makes a plan. 
He makes a plan in order to redeem you. A plan that stretches back from before the foundations of the earth. Because uh, we, we, we did miss yesterday's section, I'm going to kind of take things a little bit out of order and switch things around. Turn over, if you would, to the page that starts with the role of the Spirit, union with Christ. And go down about three quarters of the way, you're going to see a thing that says, reminder, the bad news about the human condition. Because you see, typically what happens at this point when we start to talk about predestination, one of the main arguments that, that, that begins to stir up in our hearts is this just doesn't seem fair. This just doesn't seem right. How could God choose some from before the foundations of the earth and simply pass over and ignore others? Right? How could God choose some and not others? And what I want us to see is that, that this very attitude demonstrates that, that you and I really have lost sight. We, we, we've lost our understanding of what grace really means. Because most of us believe that God owes us something. We believe that we deserve mercy, right? And so this idea that God would show mercy to some and simply pass over others just doesn't seem to square. But, uh, but and you guys have heard this, but look, you know, let's, let's kind of remind ourselves quickly what, uh, what Scripture says about the human condition. Um, our time is quickly expiring, so we won't look at each of these passages, but if you take time to look at them later, Ephesians 2.1, I think the same language was uh, in uh, Colossians chapter 2 from the passage that uh, we heard last night. We're dead. We're dead. Not just sick, but we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're blinded by Satan. We're actually enslaved. Uh, I, for some reason, don't have a, a reference down there, but you could write Romans 6. Romans 6, you're going to hear about the slavery that we have to sin. And finally, in Romans chapter 3, 10 to 12, Paul tells us that on our own, on our own, without the aid of the Spirit, every single one of us is unable and unwilling to seek God. But the reality is we don't typically think about ourselves in those terms. We think that God owes us something. And when we when we start to see it, when we start to see it in this way, you know, if you think back to that image that, that Rick reminded us of, of that of the oil spill, right? And of that pipe that lives within us where all that garbage is just being brought up to the surface. When we see ourselves in that way, it begins to transform us. And the real shock, the real shock to us shouldn't be that God doesn't choose anybody, but that he actually chose somebody. That he actually chose you. He didn't need to. In love, he predestined you. He chose you from before the foundations of the earth. 
But that's just the beginning, right? God chose us before the foundations of the earth. But how does he actually accomplish this? How does he bring this about? Right? And in John 3.16, we're reminded of, of how God begins to accomplish this. Right? John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In order to accomplish this purpose, this mission of saving you, God sends his Son. And the role of the Son, we want to switch gears now, moving from the Father's election to the, to the, to the role of the Son. The role of the Son is to redeem us. Atonement is the, is the term there on the top of your page. And to atone simply means to make amends. It's Christ's job to reconcile us to the Father, to make amends between us and God. And sometimes I think when, when we start to think about Jesus and we start to think about God, sometimes we think about Jesus as kind of the good guy, right? He's the one who's full of grace and mercy. And God the Father is kind of this angry ogre. And so Jesus comes along and he sacrifices himself so that, that God the Father is no longer angry, right? But actually what, what we already saw in Ephesians, chapter, in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, is that it's actually the love of God that's the source of all of this. The source of the atonement is God's love, the Father's love for you. A couple of verses uh, to remind you of this. Ephesians chapter 2. These are, the, these are the verses written there. I'll just read them for you. A few of them real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us, But God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Romans 5, 8, similarly, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. The love of the Father for you. But why? Why in the world would God go through all that trouble? Right? Why couldn't he just choose us and then save us and accept us how we are? Right? Another story about my wife and I. After we, uh, when we first got married, um, we got married in October, and we were moving to St. Louis to start seminary in January. So we had about three months where we were going to be living in Ohio. And it's kind of hard to find a place to live for only three months. Not many people are going to rent you an apartment. And so finally found this one place. It was kind of a duplex. Uh, we were living on the bottom floor of this old house, and somebody else was living up on the top floor. And uh, went, and I, I, and I looked at the place. You know, I had to find a good place to bring my new bride home to. This was going to be our first home. And it looked okay. There were these carpet squares, though, all throughout the, uh, the, uh, the main room. And I just figured it was because a lot of people were coming in and, you know, the landlord didn't want people tracking in mud or something. So 
um, we signed this little lease agreement for three months and come back from our honeymoon and I move my new bride into our new home. And we begin to get settled in. And uh, one of the first things we do is we, we pick up the carpet squares. We're like, why are these carpet squares still here? We pick up the carpet squares and there's stains all over the floor. And so I called the landlord and asked him about it. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, the previous tenants used it as a tattoo parlor. So here I am, this new husband just brought my wife into a uh, biohazard, basically. With tattoo ink and probably human blood and other things stained into the carpet. And the landlord thought that if he just put carpet squares over the stains, it made everything okay. It made that stain go away. And you guys are thinking a lot about stains this week. Just like that ink and that blood was soaked into the fiber of the carpet. You and I are people who are stained at a deep, deep level. And God loves us so much that when he talks about redeeming us, he's not talking about throwing carpet squares over our imperfections and pretending like they're not there. That's not real love. Real love is turning a blind eye to the deep things that shame you, to the things that you carry around. God loves you so much that he doesn't throw carpet squares over your sin. He sent his son to remove that stain. And that's what the cross is all about. Exodus 34, 7, we're told about the character of God. We're told that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? And we love that part. We know God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's beautiful. But we oftentimes stop there. Moses tells us that's only half of God's character. Turn over Exodus 34, 7 in the Old Testament. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, in, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How can these two statements stand side by side. The fact that God proclaims on the one hand that he is a God who forgives sin, but on the other hand that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And the only way that that's possible is through the cross. What happens at the cross? 
Colossians 2, 13 and 14, which was one of the verses that uh, we were reminded of last night by Tom, we, we hear there in Colossians 2, 13 and 14 that what Jesus did on the cross was pay the penalty for our sin. He paid that debt. Remember, Tom was reminding you about that debt, that inexhaustible debt. It was nailed to the cross. The guilt of your sin completely removed. But open up to 1 Corinthians. Everyone turn there. 1 Corinthians. I know we're moving fast. We're covering a lot of material. Um, hang with me, though. 1 Corinthians 5. Actually, um, we want to be going to 2 Corinthians. You could kind of change that on your paper if you got a pencil. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Paul says, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took our sin upon him. Our sin transferred to Christ. But Paul says a second thing happens. Christ's righteousness is then transferred to us. And this is important. Now, there's a little thing. There's supposed to be some arrows over there where it says the great exchange. You can make a little arrow. Christ's righteousness imputed to us going from the cross to us and our sin imputed. That's just a fancy theological way to say given. Our sin is given placed on Christ. The great exchange, Martin Luther called that. The best exchange you'll ever make. Trading your sin in for the righteousness of Christ. And the reason why this is important, the reason why this is important is because at the cross, and only at the cross, these two aspects of God's character are able to meet. The things that we heard about in Exodus 34. His mercy and his justice meet. His love and his righteousness are able to meet. And he becomes what we read in, in Romans chapter 3. God at the cross becomes a God who is able to be both just He's a God who deals with sin. Deals with sin not by placing that penalty on us, but by placing it upon his son. God is able to be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. He's the one who's able to bring sinners into relationship with in order to draw near those men and women who he chose from before the foundations of the earth. And this is really, this, this, this is important. You know, because sometimes we want God just to throw some carpet squares over our sin, right? When we sin, we're people who long for mercy. Sometimes even expect mercy. 
But the reality is that only describes half of the human condition. Every single one of you, as much as you know the guilt and the shame of all the junk bubbling up within your heart, you also know the pain of what it means to be sinned against, what it means to be violated, what it means to be taken advantage of, what it means to be abused. And in that moment, you and I aren't people who long for mercy. We're not. We're people who long for justice. And the beautiful thing is, at the cross, and only at the cross, we're able to find both. Because every single one of us are both sinners and people who have been sinned against. And we kind of are schizophrenic. One moment of our life, we're, we're, we're just, we're crying out for mercy. We're longing for nothing but mercy. And the next moment of our life, we're, we're longing, we're crying out for nothing but justice. And you're not going to go anywhere else and be able to have those longings satisfied. At the cross, we find a God who is both just, who holds men and women accountable for their sins, who places and who punishes sin, who will either pour that punishment out upon the sinner, or who has already poured that punishment out started with the question, how much does God really care about me? If you, if you turn your page over, you, you recognize we haven't really finished our discussion on the atonement. Um, hang with me for just a few more minutes. We are almost there. This is going to be super abbreviated. But the reality is, just as God chose particular sinners from before the foundations of the earth, Scripture tells us that he also sent his son to die for particular sinners. Theologically, we call this the limited atonement or particular redemption. What scripture teaches you is that Jesus didn't just die for a mass of nameless and faceless people that hopefully may, potentially, maybe, maybe, I don't know, believe in him one day. No. Jesus died for every single man and woman who the Father chose from before the foundations of the earth. you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know this, that not only has God chosen you from the foundations of the earth, but Christ died.
die for you. He went to the cross with your name graven upon his hands, with your face etched in his mind. How much does God care about you? He cares about you enough to have chosen you from before the foundations of the earth and to send his son into the world to die for you. For you. In particular. In particular. Tomorrow we're going to pick up this discussion and we're going to talk about where the spirit comes into this whole discussion. And um, find out what the spiritual is and, and kind of conclude it. Uh, but at this point, it's time to go to lunch, and let me pray for us as we head on out. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great love that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us by this truth, Lord, that you would help us to be people who depend upon your grace in all things and who rest upon your great love for your people. Ask now that you would uh, go with us, and we pray this uh, in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen.